Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. And a warning that this episode of Doing Time may contain audio images and descriptions of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who have died and deaths in custody. This week on Doing Time, we will first of all bring you an interview with Jeff Waters, author of Gone for a Song, A Death in Custody on Palm Island. Then we will hear from Dr David Abello from People with Disability Australia, who will give a report back on the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras parade on Saturday 25th, 25th February as part of Sydney's World Pride 2023. Gone for a Song explores the issues surrounding Murunji's contentious arrest, his sudden death and the long sequence of botched police investigations and official challenges to an inquest. It also focuses attention on the crucial secret evidence, which to this day remains suppressed by the coroner's court. Written by Jeff Waters, an ABC journalist who closely followed the case, this book also puts the abusive treatment of Indigenous Queenslanders in its full historical context. In doing so, it sheds light on how such a death could happen and why it could lead to aborted investigations. During his, his career, Jeff Waters has worked as a journalist in almost 30 countries, focusing largely on human rights, social justice and environmental issues. In June 1996, he became the first Australian re reporter to employ new digital cameras to set up a freelance video journalist operation in Europe and North Africa, which resulted in work for companies like Associated Press Television and CNN and allowed him to pursue important subjects. He's held a variety of positions for ABC News and current affairs in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane and Darwin and recently won several Queensland Media Awards for ABC Television and Radio Current Affairs Stories on Social Justice Issues. I have taken the liberty to read out a couple of things from the, the preface of the book itself and also just to give a little bit of information about Jeff, given that this book is, you know, was, was I believe published in 2008 and I'll check that publication date with Jeff in a minute. But I really wanted to talk about that because to me the book is never old because these issues are always relevant and I wanted to um, speak with Jeff about the book and, and also 
um, about deaths in custody. Hello, Jeff. Welcome to the program. Well, hello, and what a remarkable introduction. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. It is lovely to have you. And in fact, last week when we um, practically almost ran into each other in the kitchen at 3CR, (laughs) I was so determined to just grab you and, and put you on air. Well, here I am. So when was the book published, Jeff? Yeah, you were right, 2008, um, after the event or events uh, of 2004, which is uh, when Marinci met his untimely demise, uh, and uh, which is what, you know, the time frame that the book um, looks at. But as you say, it also goes back into the history of Palm Island to give a, and of Indigenous rights in Queensland, to give a uh, context to why this death in custody may and, 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 and what was announced about it may have led to rioting that resulted in the burning down of the, um, um, of the courthouse and of the police watch house. So let's go back to the beginning. So what prompted you to write the book? I know that you're, you're involved in the... You, you lived actually in Queensland, the Joe Bjocke peterson era. Can you just tell us uh, what, what led to you... <laughs> <laughs> you know, writing the book. Well, I certainly did. I grew up in the Bjarke Peterson era uh, in Queensland and went to university at the time, you know, when things were at their, you know, worst. Uh, but then I went south to Canberra and Sydney and uh, went overseas to Britain and Europe, as, as you mentioned, And uh, but then had children and decided to come home to Australia and... Uh, brought my young family to Brisbane and was working for the ABC's uh, Radio Current Affairs programs, AM and PM, uh, uh, and when the death in custody happened and then the riot happened. Uh, and my response to what was being shown in the general media, the mainstream media, you know, commercial media, it was, uh, as I say in that preface, sort of almost gloating that they were um, having this wonderful story to fall on their laps of a, of, a, of a revolt in an Aboriginal community, how terrible this community must be uh, and how brave and exemplary the police are in uh, quashing the rebellion. But, of course, um, uh, investigations and subsequent... Uh, sorry, I was, uh, so I was working for uh, PM and AM at the time, Uh, and I was quite disgusted by what was happening, so I decided to delve into it, got into contact with people who were very close to the dead man, uh, and um, started to find out things that I could run in stories that effectively changed public opinion about the whole thing. Um, uh, For instance, the first story that grabbed headlines was the fact that I found out that there was actually a watch house video of uh, the man in question dying uh, and screaming for help that the police had uh, not mentioned in any of the evidence files and was basically being covered up. So that sort of thing, um, as soon as the public started hearing, well, hold on a minute, why are the police trying to cover this up? Then um, the story could start rolling in the other direction, so to speak. 
So the book was actually written around the time that Lex Watton was arrested? Or was it before that? Uh, no, Lex Watton, the, the book was certainly written after, after. Lex Watton was arrested. Oh, Just yeah. to put in context. Years after he was first arrested, Absolutely. Absolutely, and and you and after he was he was gagged and and suppressed from speaking. Yes, absolutely, and they used a um, taser on him. Uh, this was in response to the riot. Um, police used a taser on him illegally, as tasers hadn't been um, approved in Queensland at that stage, uh, and. Um, uh, you know, threw him in prison. Um, uh, his wife went into premature labour uh, and she was flown to Townsville Hospital, leaving there several other children. I, I don't remember how many, four or five mm -hmm. other children unattended uh, and with no recourse but to go and try and find help from neighbours and family around the neighbourhood. You know, the children were left unattended. So this is a sort of treatment that happened to that family. Of course, Lex was subsequently found not to have uh, not to have uh, caused the riot, but uh, but uh, you know that this is what happened in Queensland at that time. Because it really was a legitimate protest, wasn't it? Well, it was a legitimate, certainly a legitimate protest. What had happened was that uh, due to a large amount of evidence being suppressed. And the actual coroner who examined the body in Cairns uh, wasn't sent all of the details of what had happened. The coroner um, uh, wrote in a document that, uh, you know, to the best of his, um, uh, the best that he could work out, the man must have died in a fall because his spleen had been ruptured, his liver, his liver had been cleaved in two. Uh, internally, uh, and um, uh, 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 this could only result from a very high fall. So, uh, unfortunately, the poor mayor at the time, an elderly woman, was um, given no choice but to read out these findings at a public meeting in the main square of Palm Island uh, with, you know, hundreds of people gathered. And she had to read out that uh, the coroner had found that the man had died in a fall. Uh, and that is what subsequently triggered the riot. Um, you know, Lex and a number of other people got up on the microphone and spoke. Uh, and um, soon after, the, uh, the buildings burnt down. Yeah, it was a, a, a very, very miscarriage a miscarriage of justice well yes i mean um you know uh there's no way that Morinchi died in a fall uh, no. there was no, nowhere high enough i mean apart from and you know uh, the book details it all but effectively um uh he was repeatedly punched uh and uh this uh, while he was lying on the ground uh and this is what caused it, the injuries that killed him there is a, a paragraph here that, at the beginning of the book that I'd really like to take the liberty to read out. Is that okay, Jeff? Yeah, sure, of course you can. Of this particular can. one, and I'll just read it. One hot morning... It's been out there for a long time now. <laughs> <laughs> it has, and you know... <laughs> but it doesn't matter because week in, week out, 
I report on Aboriginal deaths in custody and we provide extensive coverage on, on the Doing Time show. And it's just really important to, I feel, to have this book to highlight the fact that the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, you know, there are 339 recommendations. Has anything really changed? I mean, Chris Hurley was really didn't need to take um, the the young Indigenous man to the police station, did he? I mean, you know, prison is a last resort, right? Yes. That's one of the recommendations. Yes, he was uh, drunk. Uh, the, the, the man who was arrested was drunk. Dead man was drunk. Uh, walking along the road, he was a bit of a joker. The police were in, arresting another person and uh, Morinji sung out uh, the uh, words to the song who, who Let the Dogs Out as a joke as he walked past the police. Uh, and 45 minutes later, he was dead. Exactly. As it says in this paragraph, which is so powerful, it's one hot morning in November 2004 on Queensland's Palm Island, a young Indigenous man made some comments that clearly irritated the police officer in the midst of making an arrest nearby. And then you talk in the book about how that less than two hours later... Sorry, two, less than two hours later, I got my times wrong. Yeah, he was. Yeah, later, he, he died in, in the lockup. And then That's two right. years after that... Chris Hurley um, faced court and found That's not right. guilty. That's right. That's so, right. Well, the reason he was found not guilty, he was. It was a wonder that ever got to court because um, uh, the you know director of public prosecutions would have you know intricately looked at the evidence that was available for a conviction uh, and seen that a conviction was impossible. Uh, Chris Hurley was never going to go to jail. Um, it was a bit of a show trial, if you ask me, you know, in a positive sense, I suppose. But he was never going to be found guilty because his colleagues had covered up the evidence of the mur- of the M word out loud, or I might get sued. Sorry, <laughs> of the uh, death, covered up the evidence of the, of the way that he had been killed, Warrenji had been killed to such a wonderful extent that uh, uh, it would never have been possible to convict anybody of that death. So, in effect, it appears that there, there were lots of lies on the, on the stand. Uh, not so much lies on the stand as, uh, for instance, uh, not securing the crime scene. Right. Uh, uh, not, uh, you know, so anything could have happened at that crime scene for something like uh, uh, 36 hours before it was secured. Uh, like, um, uh, I, I would say, yeah, there were several, several examples of things like that where it was uh, allowed, there was time and, and, and the possibility of tampering of evidence and uh, covering up, you know, blood stains could have been cleaned up, etc. Uh, 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 that the uh, it was referred the death was because it involved um, senior constable Chris Hurley at the time. Uh, uh, that um, the most senior police officer in Townsville was immediately contacted and he dispatched two men from 
uh, Townsville immediately to fly over to the island to conduct the investigation into the death, and they were both both Chris Hurley's best friends. Uh, and they barbecued with Chris Hurley that night on their arrival uh, when they were supposed to be conducting an independent investigation. So that sort of thing. Um, uh, you know, everything had been completely covered up. Uh, uh, so Chris Hurley couldn't be convicted. So it's really about police investigating police, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, the Independent Commission Against Corruption, uh, or whatever it's called in <laughs> Queensland, I'm sorry, they all have different names, um, uh, uh, only has, uh, only doesn't have the budget to employ its own investigators. So it has to use police. Although that was certainly the case at the time. Indeed. And it, it, it really, it beggars belief, you know, really having a look at the fall. You know, the, the fall is the thing that as a radio broadcaster reporting on it, I found quite appalling. You know, that the fall was blamed, wasn't it, at first? Yes, that's right. Um well, two falls, if you like. Uh, one, the fall that the coroner in Cairns who examined the body uh, ruled, uh, and that was, he said, you know, I think from a substantial height, uh, whereas then there's the other fall which is in contention, which is when Chris Hurley was taking Morinji into the watch house, there was a step up into the... Uh, uh, what looked like a demountable building, really, but step up into this uh, watch house, uh, and that the two men tripped as Morinji resisted, uh, and that they fell, and that Chris Hurley's weight and perhaps his elbow had crushed uh, Morinji's chest, uh, where, you know, uh, you can judge for yourself whether that would provide sufficient force to cut a man's liver in two inside their body. And yet there were witnesses that, I, I, you know, I just wanted to check with you here, that had heard um, Chris Hurley saying, have you had enough to the, to the, yeah, the yeah, dead man? Yeah. There was a um, man who had been arrested on the charge who was sitting in the police station, I believe handcuffed. His view of what happened was obscured by a large filing cabinet so he couldn't actually see what was happening, but he um, testified at the um, first coronial inquest that um, he was under the impression that Morinchi was being punched repeatedly and that he heard Chris Hurley say, is that enough, or words to that effect, is that enough for you, Mr. Morinchi, etc. Absolutely, absolutely. So it's it appears then that the 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 evidence was inconsistent then. You know, from uh, one inquest to another. Not the evidence, sorry, the the testimonies from one inquest to the other, because there were two inquests, right? And weren't there different things said? Uh, by the police? I don't that, no, I don't. Okay, think I just wanted I to check that. that there was inconsistencies on what, what the police said, although of course, uh, as I said, uh, they were all singing from the same hymn sheet. Ah. 
So, I mean, they, they, they said the same story. There were no inconsistencies in their story between the inquests. Oh, okay. I just wanted to check that because I... I wasn't quite sure. Yeah, that's good to clarify that. Um, just for listeners, that it wasn't inconsistent so much, but it was. Um, but can you just explain? Yeah, sure. It wasn't that the, that their testimony was inconsistent. It was that the um, uh, evidence uh, at the at the start of things, right. which soon after uh, Morangi was killed, uh, had been. Uh, tampered with or, or could have been tampered with uh, 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 but um, and the testimony of the people remained consistent but that there was a lot of omission uh, that they uh, you know didn't mention a lot of things that um, other people said had happened so so there are uh, there was well, let me put it this way there was a sufficient question mark over the whole thing for the Director of Public Prosecutions to subsequently charge Chris Hurley with manslaughter. So um, uh, uh, that that was only came about as a result of huge question marks over the whole investigation by the coroner's uh, inquests in the first place. So that's why uh, Chris Hurley subsequently got charged with manslaughter, because uh, there were questions over the, um, over the strength of the evidence because, as I said, things like um, best friends were sent to do the investigation and uh, crime scenes weren't uh, um, secured and things like that. So I hope that makes it clear. No, it does. And, and I just wanted to, to make sure that, you know, listeners understood that because this, this has been talked about over and over again um, on this show because... You know, as you would be aware yourself, there there have been many, many Aboriginal deaths in custody since then, and unfortunately, it's a lot of it is very similar. Abominable record on behalf of this country. It's quite disgusting. It it is disgusting. I mean, you know, you look at what happened with Arnie Tanya Day. You know what happened uh, that she was on the train um, in Victoria, up at Castlemaine Station, and then. She she had had a, 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 um, some alcohol, and the drunkenness so was what? considered. I know, I know. It could be anybody on that train. They, if they'd been asleep, they wouldn't have been treated like that. Other people, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it should be a health response, not a police response, anyway. Yes, of course. It comes from uh, as a result of you know generations of of trauma. Because I was even just having a look at this book, um, just flipping through it at the moment. Was well, I'm not flipping through; I'm on the computer. But <laughs> where are pa- where are paper books gone now? <laughs> oh, that's all right. As long as you're reading it, that's great. <laughs> and you know, with the the dead man, he was a notable singer and joker. Yeah. And it appears that um, at first the police were trying to say that he was swearing, and he wasn't. He was just singing. That's right. Other people testified after the police said that he'd been swearing and obnoxious, but of course uh, other people had seen and heard it and they said that he had uh, just been singing and joking around. What What is Who Let the Dogs Out? What What song is that? Um, oh, gosh, I wish I could tell you. I think it's You're reggae. A complete music ignoramus. I think it is reggae. Um, and it goes, Who Let the Dogs Out? Who, 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 who? 
Who let the dogs out? There you go. I'm singing on three cigars. <laughs> we need to get famous, a guitar. Famous author sings on three cigars. <laughs> 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 Not that I think I'm famous, listeners. Believe oh, me. You never. <laughs> Tell me. I mean, <laughs> this book is definitely relevant. How can people read it? Well, it's in most libraries. Unfortunately, though, I don't believe there's an electronic version, unless you can educate me otherwise. But um, uh, it is in hundreds of libraries, I kid you not, around Australia. And uh, people are still borrowing it very regularly because they get notified, uh, which I'm very, very proud of. It's very important. And um, oh, that's what I wanted to ask you before you go. The footage... You, you mentioned that there was a, a vi- I don't know if we spoke about this on air or off yeah. air, the videotape at the yeah. Watch House. Can you talk about that? It's never been released. It is subject to a um, uh, ongoing and in per- uh, very exotic law, uh, so to suppose lawyers say, uh, uh, a... But uh, lawyers that I spoke to couldn't find any other example in Australia uh, legal history where information uh, uh, relating to this trial, including that video, uh, are subject to a suppression order by the court uh, until the end of time. There was a suppression order? Yeah. Of the videotape? You can't even, you can't, they can't release it. Uh, It can't be watched. Um, The... the, um, they, they watched it during the uh, um, coroner's inquest, but it couldn't be released to the public and um, is locked up somewhere behind closed doors. What's the good of that? Well, um, you know, Queensland's a small... Well, it's a big state, but it's a small population and uh, people are connected to other people and... Uh, um, the police, I'm sure, were advocating for this video never to be seen by anybody because it would have made them look very, very bad, I imagine. Maybe, and I don't want to speculate. The police could have been screaming out for help and being ignored, you know? Exactly. Well, you never know. Chris Hurley could have been in, serving a sentence by now. If that had been... don't want to speculate here, but... Sorry, what? what Chris, Chris Hurley may, may be in prison if, if that videotape had been released. Uh, not making uh, assumptions. I'm not here to speculate. speculate. Yeah, I don't yeah, want to speculate here. But I yeah, say for sure. me either. It's approximately four twenty-six, and you are listening to an interview with Jeff Waters, who is the author of "Gone for a Song." Um, "Gone for a Song: A Death in Custody on Palm Island." Any final comments that you'd like to make? And thank you so much for coming on, Jeff. It's been great. Well, thank you for plugging my book. I'll plug my second book, which is called Every Beat of My Heart, which you should read if you're approaching middle age because uh, it's all about the fact that I died for 57 minutes of a cardiac arrest uh, and my recovery from that. So um, uh, uh, learn about the warning signs of heart attack and cardiac arrest. And learn CPR. I say this in every radio interview. I was Googling you. Oh, is that, is that you too? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what a great chat. Oh, wow.
Jeff, it's, yeah, that's great. Well, thank you so much for coming onto the program and hopefully um, we'll be having you on at some stage. Always, always happy to come back. Thank you for the interview. Lovely, Lovely. to have you. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Jeff Waters uh, who wrote the song Gone for a Song, sorry, wrote the book Gone for a Song in a Death in Custody on Palm Island. And... I'm going to try and find the ISBN number of this, if I can. 9780733322216. I'm not even sure. If, I, I'm actually reading it to the best of my ability. But anyway, I'm sure you'll be able to find it without the ISBN. And thank you once again to, to Jeff for coming onto the show. Do you believe in the right to protest? Are you concerned about climate change and the environment? Then come and make your voice heard at a mass meeting on the right to organise for climate and the environment. Join others at 6.30pm on Tuesday, March 7th at 535 Elizabeth Street, Central Melbourne to discuss and then vote on practical ways to support climate action and the environment and to defend the right to protest. Speakers include proud Gunai Kurnai woman Marjorie Thorpe, United Workers Union's Godfrey Mose, and Environment Justice Australia lawyer Natalie Hogan, and will be facilitated by Tuffy Morwitzer, campaigner for the Goongarra Environment Centre. Come participate in some direct democracy for a better world. Your voice matters. RSVP is essential. Go to gecko.org.au forward slash calendar to book your ticket. This event is wheelchair accessible and Auslan interpreted. A 3CR supporter. Tune in to 3CR's annual International Women's Day broadcast. 24 hours of women and non-binary news, views and music on Wednesday the 8th of March. We want to celebrate the resistance, talent, strengths and power of women and genderqueer living here in the Kulin Nation and of those living, fighting and creating change all over so-called Australia and the world. This International Women's Day celebration is a celebration of feminism that knows that liberation from gender depression can never be achieved without dismantling all systems of domination and subjugation. From midnight Sunday the 7th of March until midnight on Monday the 8th of March, we'll bring you 24 hours of radio by women and non-binary presenters, producers and musicians. For details, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash IWD 2023. And if you've just tuned in, this is 3CR Community Radio doing time show, 855am on the dial. It's approximately 431 and we're going to be speaking next up with Dr David Abello, who is from People with Disability Australia. We're proud and loud. People with Disability Australia joined the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras Parade on Saturday 25th February as part of Sydney's World Pride 2023. 
and the National Disability Rights Peak Body are loud and proud with an 80-strong group of people with disability and supporters ready to participate. And I invited Dr David DeBello onto the show because I think it's really important to talk about not just the march but also maybe to talk a little bit about the history of the police and some of the um, the other pride marches that were not so successful and also because the Doing Time show has historically reported on quite a lot of uh, people in prison, either that are gay or transgender and who have, has, have experienced discrimination and transphobia. Hello, um, Dr. David Abello. Welcome to the program. Uh, Marissa, lovely to talk to you. You too, you too. So enlighten me. Tell me about the the march. The first one? Oh, how many were there? <laughs> In 1978. Oh, yeah, let's start with that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, why not? Well, there was a little bunch of us. Uh, I was about one of 20 or so people who got together to put on a day of events. Uh, we had the call from North America. The Briggs Initiative in California was uh, going to ban homosexuals from teaching or holding public sector office. People in the UK were also being attacked by the likes of Mary Whitehouse. So we had a day of solidarity, a world day of solidarity, and we had a march in the morning around the city of Sydney. There was about 500 of us, which is huge for those days. It was the biggest thing we'd ever done. We had a seminar in the afternoon uh, about homosexual rights movements around the world and in, in the third world as well. And we finished off the evening with what was going to be a fun event, a Mardi Gras. It was intended not to be quite as explicitly political and more in the fun department. But uh, we had a permit from the police. We said there would be a couple of hundred people, 2,000 people turned up. The police freaked out. They let us go ahead with our parade down Oxford Street, but they pushed from behind to get it over and done with as quickly as possible. We were stopped from going into Hyde Park in the middle of the city, which is where we intended to go. We got stuck or trapped in College Street. We took off from there down William Street to the Cross, King's Cross. The reason we went to King's Cross was because Sydney was... a uh, you know, Sydney shut down at 8pm every night. You know, it was like that then. So we went to the cross because there would be people on the streets, people who were sympathetic to us and who would be witnesses to what was about to happen to us. They, uh, We went down Darlingness Road into the Ola Main Fountain. We had a couple of speeches. We turned around to go home and the police wagons had blocked every lane and street so we were stuck and then they hoed into us with the intent of arresting every single person there uh, we fought back uh, violently <laughs> this is the best of our ability yeah. uh, they, the police reacted uh, I suppose appropriately to our behaviour they banged people's heads into the sides of wagons. They throw people into the 
door of the wagon and banged the door on their legs, quite a few broken legs like that, uh, pulling people's hair, pulling people's clothes. Uh, you know, people would be put in the wagons and then the next time the door opened, everyone would run out. Um, people who did that got extra specially bad treatment. So it felt like it went for hours, but it only went for about half an hour. When the dust settled, we went off to Darling Hurst Police Station, where all the wagons had gone, and the 54 people who were in them, and uh, we stood vigil at the front. Uh, we could hear screaming, we could hear beatings uh, from inside the station. We chanted people's names who we know were getting particularly special treatment from the Darlinghurst Police. A lot of... uh, They refused to let a doctor in and a lawyer. They... um, uh, Quite a few people were arrested at the front of the police station that night too. Uh, When we turned up at the police courts on Monday, the magistrate, Farquhar, ordered the police to let people in. The police illegally closed the courthouse and it meant that people who had to present to, uh, their charges uh, uh, couldn't couldn't get into the uh, into the courthouse. That's my dog. Sorry. That's all right. Just um, sorry, I'm just moving. The dog's obviously not happy. No, I live with a deaf person who just has no idea how much noise he makes. <laughs> That's my boyfriend. That's okay. uh, so, yeah, it was pretty horrible. Uh, we had two or three more major events to get people um, for the dr- charges to be dropped, and we kept that up for a year. And I suppose the most important thing that came out of that was that we had a second Mardi Gras in '79. So it's true what some people say. If that police hadn't done what they did the first time around, there wouldn't have been another Mardi Gras, probably. And we'd be doing something else instead. Wow. So uh, I didn't get arrested because I'm short and I'm good at evading the police. You know, you duck down and duck up somewhere else. And, uh, but uh, I was just lucky. I was just lucky. Um, the people who did get arrested, everyone knows this now, I think, had, as the usual behaviour of the newspapers, their names, addresses and occupations printed in the paper that week. So uh, that was very disastrous for a lot of people. A lot of people lost family, friends, their house, their job and so on. So, yeah, it was a big year for all of us, and I suppose it shaped the things to come. We need to shine that spotlight. We need to... It's a timely reminder, isn't it? Oh, it is. It is, you know, and and the same thing could happen in many countries in the world tomorrow. And the same thing could happen in many rural and regional centres in Australia tomorrow. would be different, but... You know, uh, I think we, these days we look t- 
to overseas, we look to defend queers in other nations, you know, uh, to face death penalties and so on, as people here did once. People often don't seem to know that you could be hung for being homosexual. Uh, and the male, uh, male sexual assault on a male person, even if it was consensual, could get you 14 years in prison. So, uh, you know, there are a lot of people around the world who, world who are still facing those kinds of regimes, those kind of laws, and we try to do what we can to shine a light on that, shine a light on that as well, if I can borrow your metaphor. Exactly, and it's it's so important. I mean, I've even done interviews on this show about conversion therapy, and I actually know of a of a friend some years ago now who who was his family tried to get him to do some therapy to convert him not to be gay. I don't know how even to explain it. It does it's happen, kind of crazy too. thinking. It is. Oh, it does. It does. And, you know, there isn't a single piece of international evidence that you can change people in that way. Uh, but you go back a few years when homosexuality, when male homosexuality was legal, illegal, the courts would um, direct people to have aversion therapy or they might bargain. Aversion, that's right. Yeah, go on. Yeah. And they might bargain like... I'll have aversion therapy instead of 10 years in jail, you know, that sort of thing. So people would would go... So the courts actually directed people to aversion therapy. The irony of that, and I shan't name names because I don't want to get your station into trouble, but most of that was done at the Prince of Wales Hospital under a particular professor who came out as gay, ultimately. So... Um, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Irony. Terrible irony. It's um, absolutely, absolutely. A defamation can't happen if it's the truth, can it? No, no. Well, the thing is, I know several people who had aversion therapy around that time and kind of mucked up their sex lives for a very long time. Of course. It's it's traumatic. Yeah. It's traumatic. And, and in fact, yeah. you know... Uh, Without naming names, but but the friend that I I knew, we've lost touch now, but I knew him for many years, and he he was traumatized. He's got he's had long term, far reaching traumatic consequences from that. Yeah, 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 yes, yes. The same for some of my friends. Um, uh, uh, yeah. So this this kind of wave of Christian conversion therapy is nothing new. Nothing new. The state used to do it too. Now the churches continue. Not all the churches, of course, but some of them. And, you know, it's premised on a complete fabrication, you know, that there's one thing, that there's anything wrong with being homosexual or lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and that uh, God doesn't like it, you know, which is a bit... (laughs) contradictory in terms of Christian philosophy. Uh, I think God is supposed to love all of us and has fashioned us in his image, her image. 
you know, I'm not a very religious person, but, you know, it, it's, it's shockingly contradictory to me. What kind of love is that, you know? Is so it... I feel it's, it, I'm glad the states are variously moving against the practice. Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad as yeah. well. And needs to be we need to get that remove that here as well and i'm belie- i'm also feeling i'm quite sure actually that i did an interview with the human rights law center some years ago now about how the criminal records of of gay people they've cleaned it out now they're no long it's no longer the case is it that's right yeah yeah just to uh, qu- go on couple of reasons behind that it's not all about what people did it's about who arrested them Correct. I got beaten unconscious by two detectives in my home once in 1982 who came to extort money or charged me with homosexual sex. And um, the Fitzgerald inquiry into New South Wales Police Force actually wrote that up as one of the things that they regularly did. You know, so... um, so it wasn't all about just getting beaten up in the streets, you know. The corruption of the police was utter and absolute, and they were totally distant from any kind of legitimate authority. So when Neville Wren got elected first Labor Premier for some time, of course, it's one of the reasons we got our heads bashed in on uh, on the in '78. You know, they were trying to embarrass him. Uh, because they regarded us as part of the Labor constituency, you know, if you know what I mean. Mm. So we were a political football back then, still, as we are today in some respects. Absolutely. You know, I'd really love to have you back again um, at some stage to, to talk more about this. Now, going on yeah, with disability, sure. um, so yeah. the, the PWDA it's, has spent over 40 years fighting for the rights of people with disability, and, and, and I think that disability, it's its really fantastic that there's a media release about disability and the Pride March because a lot of the time dis, disability would get left out, you know, and, yeah, you yeah. know, the right to full autonomy over our own bodies and identities. So can you just talk yep. a little bit about how yeah, that's sure. connected? Uh, very connected because we're whole people Absolutely. with various attributes and characteristics um, and you know there is a strong intersection as we call it between disability and queer uh, both words are often misused <laughs> that's one connection but the other connection is that they both involve when you're becoming a sexual person that you're getting pushback from your environment perhaps friends, family neighbours, employers, whatever uh, so being queer or being disabled involves a coming out and a pushing back against that kind of resistance. So that's, that's, that's the sort of thing we have most in common, I think. Um, we've been very part, big part, queers have been a big part of the disability movement in New South Wales. I was um, elected the president of PWDA in 2018, 2019. I was the first openly queer president, also the first president to have been struck by lightning and also the oldest president ever elected. So I had a few 
feathers in my bow there. But uh, we organised within the disability movement. We formed a group called Access Plus Spanning Identities in 98. Lasted about 12 years. And we were active within the movement and within queer communities um, to bring those sort of um, concerns and realities together. Um, we had a very positive acceptance in the disability movement, probably the most queer-friendly disability movement in the world at the time, and we didn't have so much luck with the gay community. That was a bit, a bit of a, a nut that was a lot harder to break, but we did. So the first time we went in Mardi Gras, I think, was 2004, something like that, around there as a group, and and we have... We had a few years off along the way, but we're still doing it every year. Um, I was I didn't march with the 78ers. I did, sorry, march with the 78ers um, at Mardi Gras the other day because um, uh, I'm a 78er, you know. But uh, certainly I visited the disability contingent in the build-up to the parade and met all my mates there did a few interviews and stuff like that. Uh, it's lovely. That couple of hours before you go when you're all together is just... It's long enough to get around and see everyone and say hello and so on. So uh, that's uh, the connection, I suppose. Is It's a deep connection. We've brought a lot of people along for the ride. We've given people a lot of courage to be queer, we've given people courage to be out and proud about their disability, you know, and I think, you know, the more outlandish and extreme your demands are, the harder the fight and the longer the fight, but the bigger the outcomes, you know, and where I, with some pride I look at that now and think, well, if we didn't do that, if we didn't do that, where would we be? And I don't know. You can't undo history. <laughs> but I think about it, you know, from time to time. Indeed. And and how did you feel with the police float being there at, at this current Pride March? Oh, look, you know, I have a... I'd say, well, having been... The only time I've ever been beaten unconscious was by police. And really, ugh, I've always felt uncomfortable about them being in the parade, even though we can thank them for the thing happening in the first place, but what they did, I don't think there's any place for them. The first time they were in the parade, they all got paid to go and they're in their uniforms. We were particularly angry about that. You know, we got no problem with police putting on a frock and a bit of makeup and going in their social group or whatever, you know. It's not a personal thing. Seeing them in rows in great number is quite traumatic for people. Some of our Indigenous friends, some of our friends grew up on the street, uh, you know... Uh, I remember a story about one 17-year-old when the police grabbed him 
I looked at him and I said, oh, Johnny, go home. Go home. I'm not arresting you. You're too much paperwork. Mm. <laughs> you know, so lots of people had really negative ex- experiences of the police in those days, not just from being queer or being caught having sex or something, but just general policing practices. And we remember that. You don't forget that stuff. I have no fear of them now, but I used to be terrified of them. So at least I have no fear of them. You know, I've, you know, I've, I might even ring them if I needed them, you know, which I would have done years ago. I would have yeah. suffered in silence. So uh, I think, you know, some people feel strongly that it's a symbol of progress. Uh, some people say if police Uh, some people don't care Um, but nevertheless (laughs) it always evokes strong feelings you know we don't have the same feelings when we see firefighters in uniform or you know nurses or doctors or anyone in their profession group you know but uh, police in uniform is uh, challenging for some, not everyone, but some. Indeed, indeed, and very, very true. Um, uh, oh, I should say about the Police Integrity yep. and the Hate Crimes Commission, you know, so it only takes something like that, you know, for the police to be uncooperative, dealing with something that's deeply, deeply, deeply important to all of us, all the people we know who know who got bashed or killed on beats. Um, uh, um, to see them not take up the responsibility to pursue these matters and reinvestigate them and stall the, stall the inquiry and get a rebuke from the, the head of the inquiry, you know, is... is it's a reminder. You think, oh, yeah, here we are. We're back here again. You know, we haven't got the resources. It's too hard, you know. And you think, yeah, they do hate us. They do. It's <laughs> terrible. So we keep being reminded of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Dr. David, it's been great having you. Unfortunately, I'd love to talk to you longer. We could be here all oh, night, really. But Call me anytime. May Lisa. I? I'd love to have love you to back on the back. show sometime. Yeah. It's just been anytime. wonderful listening to you. Not so wonderful hearing about what's been going on with the police, but it's always good yeah. to look at history, make sure it doesn't repeat itself. Repeat itself, yes. You know, we're I on the same page here. People. Yeah, yeah, it's so important. And also to set the record straight about the police float and the significance of that police float at the Pride March and that nearly needs to be talked yeah. about in the mainstream media. Well, people have been battling against that within the movement and within the community and, you it's know, a dilemma. they don't change, yeah. I think. Anyhow, have a good afternoon, Marissa, and hello everyone in Radioland. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks so much. And let's talk soon. Thank you. Yeah, okay. Bye. Bye. And that was Dr. David Abello, who was just really wonderful to listen to. It's approximately 4.55. We've only got a couple of minutes left from the show. And thank you to Jeff Waters and Dr. David Abello for coming on to the show this evening. Um, 
I don't think I'm going to have time for any music. Just um, a reminder to keep attending the Uruk Uruk Commission um, and where Commissioner Sue Ann Hunter, along with other commissioners, um, is looking at truth-telling and treaty. So it's goodbye from Marissa and stay tuned every Monday from 4 to 5 for the Do and Time show and we're going to be going out with our theme song, Black Fella, White Fella from the Rumpy Band. Bye. Stay strong. One, two, three, four.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.